Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And we're picking up where we left off in the last episode, uh, talking about feral children, wild children, the acquisition of language, and what language really is. Yeah, if you didn't listen to the first episode yet, I suggest that you go back and check it out. We talked about, you know, what exactly a feral child is, the differences between wild children and abused children throughout history, but how they show similar, you know, uh, cognitive difficulties. And then uh, we gave examples of both, you know, mythical stories of feral children, but then also documented cases of feral children throughout history, leading us into this section where we're going to talk about the brain, language, child development, how it all works, and, and why feral children have been so important to a lot of intellectuals throughout history. Yeah, I think it's really important to, to realize what's at stake with language and, uh, and any uh, lapse in the ability to uh, acquire language. Mm-hmm. Um, because, of course, it's, as we've discussed already, it's more than a means of communicating ideas to one another. It's, it's an operating system for the brain, a key aspect of what makes us human. Uh, and we can better glimpse some of the wonders this involves, uh, but, and we can better glimpse some of the wonders, uh, that are involved in this by looking at the subtle differences among the languages. Differences that impact the way that we process the passage of time, the nature of reality. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you're uh, a regular Radio Lab listener, and I know, uh, a, a number of our listeners also listen, uh, to, to that show, then you've probably heard, Why Isn't the Sky Blue? Uh, an episode in which uh, linguist uh, Guy Duscher discusses the case for a gray sky world. You know, asking that question, do we only come to see the sky as blue? And, of course, blue is a quite rare color in the natural world. Mm-hmm. We, we see very few examples of a really, truly blue uh, organisms. So do we see the sky as blue only because we use our language to describe it as such, hmm. or is it truly blue? And he makes a compelling case that it's not really blue, it's more of a gray, and just by using the words to describe it thus, we see it thus. We change it, yeah. Well, I, I was talking to you a little bit about this bef- before we recorded the podcast. I grew up overseas, and uh, when I was a teenager, I learned Mandarin. I've since forgotten a, a huge chunk of it. Um, but my experience as a kid growing up n- knowing English and then also learning Mandarin side by side was that it, it, it very much it, there's a very different thought process mm-hmm. that goes on with Mandarin thinking compared to English thinking. And I think that this is a perfect example. I don't know that necessarily that, that, that um, those who speak Mandarin see the sky any differently than we do, but I'm sure that there are certain cultural aspects that go along with that difference in language, that difference in understanding. Yeah, there's a compelling argument to be made, I think, that uh, that language isn't just about communicating, but it's also it's about how we use the brain. It's how we, yeah. you know, again, it comes back to that, that software-hardware analogy, that language is the way in which we use our brains to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, especially like you hear often people who are learning a second language sort of describe it, feel that they are fluent in the language itself once they've started thinking in that language, right? Once they've been exposed to it enough and immersed in it, that they're thinking thoughts in that language. Yeah. Uh, one uh, one easy area to look at here, again, just to really you know bring home, bring home what's at stake with language and language acquisition and, and how important it is. Um, language is different wildly in the way that they encode time, 
And this has an effect on the manner in which we process and think about the passage of time and really on on the very nature of history, be it larger history or personal history. Um, In 2013, Yale University's M. Keith Chin, he presented an an hypothesis uh, that languages uh, that grammatically associate the future and the present tend to foster future-oriented behavior. And uh, I found this to be a, a rather, rather, rather interesting theory. Uh, it involves what uh, linguists call future time reference, or FTR. And it turns out there's uh, quite a lot of uh, variety. Yeah, I know from my experience studying communications in school that there is a lot of attention paid to how we understand time in different cultures, regardless of language even, mm-hmm. um, in in defining how those cultures exist together and apart and how uh, cross-cultural communication works. So you may be sp- speaking the same language. We could all be speaking English, but we'd have a different understanding of what near means or future means yeah. or past means. Like European tongues alone uh, tend to, to have a range uh, from a tendency to rarely distinguish present and future time, uh, such as Finnish apparently, mm. to languages like French, which have uh, separate and obligatory future forms of verbs. So you have weak FTR, again, future time reference, and strong FTR languages. And according to Chin, uh, weak FTR speakers may perceive future events as less distance, uh, less yeah. distant. Um, uh, the example that uh, he ends up using is that if a German speaker tells you that it's going to rain tomorrow, essentially he or she is saying tomorrow it is raining, as opposed to just in English where we say tomorrow it will rain. Right. So. In a sense, the future is already happening to the German language speaker. Yeah, and in effect, you're again, you, you get cross-cultural communication confusion from this, right? Like, like what is the definition of reigning, right, or when? Linguistic uh, distinctions may also lead to more precise beliefs. Uh, and studies have found that languages with more precise basic color terms cause the speaker to hold more precise color beliefs. So languages tend to process anywhere from, from 2 to 11 basic colors. Huh. Um, black, white, and red are, are pretty much a given, but several uh, languages refer to yellow, green, and blue with one basic t- uh, color term. Uh, and many languages lack a basic word for purple, pink, orange, or gray. I wonder how much that has to do with uh, different types of color blindness hmm. throughout cultures. Um, I, I know that we did an episode on color blindness and how it works for brain stuff, our mm-hmm. video show here at How Stuff Works. And there's different types of color blindness. I learned from that. You know, you can have, uh, I think it's like red green color blindness, and then there's other distinctions. So I wonder if that has something to do with it. It might. There. Um I don't believe this is actually uh, the same Radio Lab episode we referred to earlier. They talked about uh, the Odyssey, uh, about some of the the colors that are lacking from descriptions in hmm. Homer's The Odyssey, okay. leading some to theorize that that, uh, that Homer was colorblind. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, now, with the the blue uh, example we were talking, I mean the color example we were talking about earlier when in linguistics. Um, it, the, the take-home here seems to be that it means that language influences our ability to comprehend the world around us, to organize it, and to define us. And one curious example here is that in Russian, there's a strong distinction between light blue, which is globoy, I believe, okay. and dark blue, which is sinin, sinny, 
I'm, okay. I'm saying that wrong, but Sinai, I believe. And Russian speakers, therefore, tend to perform better in tests distinguishing different shades of blue. So wow, the language is more specific, and therefore their understanding, their ability to, to see it is more specific as well. I wonder if you can then see a difference in uh, the aesthetics or possibly like graphic design of those different cultures based on, like, you know, like, for instance, if blues are so... Uh, important in Russia, hmm. I wonder if you, you tend to see a lot more mixtures of different shades or hues of blue. Uh, it's like that, um, oh God, what is it? Uh, what, is it Alaskan Inuit that they have, uh, oh, the different words, words for, for snow. snow, right? Um, when you go to like Home Depot or whatever to, huh. <laughs> to buy the paints for your home, there's like, you know, 20 different types of white, basically, or, or off white or eggshell or whatever they, they have all kinds of bizarre names that they come up with for them. Having done graphic design before, I mean, I used to reference the Pantone color booklet all the time. There's like <laughs> 500 different colors in there alone. It definitely makes me want to pay more attention the next time I'm looking at any kind of uh, Russian visual yeah. media, be it a movie or art, to see is, is there more blue, is there more nuance yeah. in the blue, or maybe I won't even be able to appreciate it right. as well as a Russian language speaker based on my ability to distinguish the blues. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, let's use that as a basis then to step back for a second and bring this back to feral children. Okay. Okay. So consider, like, that we're using this example of that uh, Russian has so many distinctions between blues that we as English speakers may not even be able to comprehend them, right? Mm -hmm. That's a simple, small thing that is probably small enough that we could get past it in intercultural communication. If you're a feral child, however, and you haven't learned any language and you haven't been able to comprehend any of these things, you have no comprehension of blue at all, what blue is, what color is even, right? Mm -hmm. Then imagine how difficult it is to process cognitively the world around you. Like you said before, language, how we organize and define the world around us, our culture is how we understand the world in a way the world is so complex and there's so much coming at us at all times, right? Sensory wise that we need that. We need to be able to define that and put it into boxes or else we go crazy. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll come back to this one in a minute, but just imagine perceiving the world around you and not knowing there are names for things like not knowing the names of anything, you know, it, yeah. it's it, uh, at times we kind of as, as language uh, bearing individuals, we kind of like to experiment with that. We kind of like to occasionally like steer out into the forest and not categorize everything. And there could be something refreshing in that. But imagine, and it's so difficult to do it, imagine just not knowing the names of anything you're looking at. Mm -hmm. I, I would even go a step further. I, I would hypothesize that it's possible that some feral children may possibly don't know the difference between themselves and the external world. Hmm. Imagine that. Yeah, because language enables us to play with all these different concepts. Many mm -hmm. of them are crucial concepts to knowing what we are on a very basic existential level. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, now, another example that comes up, and perhaps you can speak to this one a little bit since um, with, given your background with uh, Mandarin, yeah. but um, the concept of time in Chinese languages, uh, not only Mandarin but other other dialects as well, I understand. Um and their use uh, of their or their, their the lack of tense, right? Yeah, I remember that. Uh, th that was a difficult part 
in learning Mandarin when I, cause I came to it when I was probably 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like the optimal time for learning a new language is something like before you're 10 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I do remember this. It's, it's significantly different. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've, I've seen some ling- linguists argue that it may contribute to the importance of ancestors right. in Chinese culture because it, it, on, on, a, on, a, on one level, it means that your ancestors are still in the present because of the mm-hmm. the tense that is used to refer to them. Again, in the same yeah. way that the, for the German, it's already raining, even though it's raining tomorrow. Yeah. For, for uh, the Chinese language speaker, the uh, the ancestor is not dead. The ancestor is still alive in the past. Yeah, that's interesting. I never considered that. I guess when I was uh, living overseas and speaking Chinese, I wasn't. I wasn't interacting with religious culture all that much, especially mm-hmm. in terms of like how they regarded their ancestors. It was more like, you know, I was at the level where they were teaching us like, here's how to buy things in a store uh, yeah. or something like that. But um, yeah, I think that that has some plausibility to it. Now, here's another uh, aspect of language that uh, that, that I, I tend not to think think about all that much either. But uh, it was explored in a piece for Ian Magazine uh, titled The Sun Does Not Rise mm-hmm. by Andrew Crummy. And uh, he pointed out that we have a lot of magical notions about how the world works, uh, and they're essentially uh, fossilized within our own language. Okay. Can um, you explain further? Yes. So um, I'll just read a quote from his article because uh, I believe this, uh, this, this drives it home. Okay. The principle of eternal folly offers a somewhat different picture. In place of history seen as a progression of steps on a ladder, we could instead imagine something more stratified. Rather like the escarpments of the Weald of Kent that Charles Darwin wrote about so eloquently, we envisage a cliff face exposed by erosion. Our own age is the topmost layer, but presented to us are the remains of every preceding age, and we are at liberty to pluck out buried fossils if we choose. So the, he mainly brings up two key examples here. We still say that the sun rises, mm-hmm. though of course it doesn't rise, the earth rotates, but we're, we're linguistically shackled to this outdated model of solar mechanics. Mm-hmm. Likewise, you still might someone say talk about how they cast their gaze over something or, or some various uh, uh, you know, turn of phrase that means the same thing, when in fact we know that rays enter our eyes. There's not like this magic laser beam that... <laughs> <laughs> shoots out cyclops wise and bounces off the thing we're looking at and then and comes, comes back. back. Yeah, this, that's interesting. I, I'd take this a step further. I wonder if he's thought about this before. I saw a presentation on um, software and desktop design before. Mm-hmm. And basically the person presenting was like, why do we still pretend that our computers are desks? <laughs> We've got folders and trash cans and and there's even pencils and notepads and all of that, right? Like we're yeah. acting like it's a desk. They're all metaphors. And we're so far along now that, and so used to digital technology that shouldn't we be using something else other than these tangible metaphors? You know? Yeah, I think that's a great example. It, it, it does drive down to the fact that, yeah, with the, the, the language we use to describe something, even, even though our, our understanding of that thing has updated significantly, we're still describing it in an outdated way, and in a sense, we're processing it in that way too. So even yeah. if you say the sun rises, like you're still kind of you, you kind of have this uh, this dual belief system in play, where on one level it is 
literally rising, and then while you still know in the back of your head that there's a more complicated orbital uh, situation going on there. It's, it's, this is an, another perfect example of culture making the world easier to understand for the human mind, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you try to comprehend what's actually going on with the sun <laughs> yeah. on the scale that it's going on with, you can't do it. Yeah. Our human brain just can't do it. Processing all those things that are happening with it in our relative, we were talking earlier about, uh, your son and, 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 uh, you know, understanding as a child the differences in space and time, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine trying to understand your human existence on this huge rock in relationship to this even <laughs> huger ball of fire and how they're rotating all around in this vast space, right? Yeah. We can't do it. So it's much easier for us to say it rises. Yeah, and I I found myself in the exact situation with him um, months and months ago, maybe a year ago. I'm standing on the beach, yeah. you know, where you can clearly see the sun come up, and then later you can see it go down. Yeah. And he's asking how what's going on, how's it working, and I I want to be able to explain something more nuanced to him, <laughs> but I end up saying, well, you know, the sun comes up and then it goes down and then it goes under. Yeah, and that's yeah, like you have to have a starting point. Exactly. Yeah, and and then from there on out, maybe you know, you can you can as he acquires more language skills mm-hmm. and syntax to be able to you know use it to uh, form new ideas, form new words, transform his understanding. Then yeah. you can kind then of Then I say, that. that thing I said earlier, yeah. Daddy was lying. That was a lie. <laughs> um, meant to protect you. <laughs> From the crushing insignificance uh, uh, human life faces at, when we stare at the sun <laughs> and understand it, the cosmic unimportant. <laughs> so, um, the, obviously... Language does does more than that. We just drew out, drew out a couple of examples here just to show you a little more of the, the complicated uh, nuances that are going on under the surface. Um, but, you know, everything, I mean, human culture, technology, the, the advance of science, like all of these things stem from language. Yeah, and at the end of the day, uh, the language and culture also, they not only define what we know, but they define how we know what we know. And I know that's, this is way too deep of a topic for us to go down into now, but like ideas of post-structuralism and, uh, language and, and, uh, post-modernism combined together, you know, basically in the, I think it was like the late seventies, especially in France that these ideas were coming about that just our very understanding of knowledge itself is dependent on language and Dependent on that is constructing limits into our understanding again, or else we'd go mad. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to look at a couple of other examples that uh, to give us uh, some, some more to chew on here with language. We're going to look at, uh, at, a, at a very primitive language that uh, lacks abstraction, fiction and myth, um, and in uh, a possible view at what uh, adult life might consist of without language. All right, we're back. Uh, you know, I read a book a few years back, uh, China Melville's uh, novel, Embassy Town. I have read this book as well. I'm oh, okay. a huge China Melville fan, and uh, that's a great book. That yeah. I was really impressed with it. It was um, very, very serious for the most part, but uh, mm-hmm. but it explored uh, some linguistic themes. Yeah, he is a really smart science fiction fantasy writer in how he plays around with 
how language defines things for us. Yeah, that's a very meta book. Yeah, that one in particular uh, dealt with interactions between humans and an alien species with severe cognitive and linguistic limitations on its ability to lie. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like that uh, Ricky Gervais uh, movie about the invention of lying, um, yeah. except uh, played seriously in a sci-fi environment where, you know, what, what does it mean when, you know, your ability to communicate with this other being uh, and its ability to process the world with its language, like it doesn't understand the concept of lying. There's some other sci-fi ideas that are thrown around in there about, like, there's one alien species that's just mentioned that it, like, communicates through vomiting, I think. And mm. and there's a, you know, one of the central uh, species in the book. For humans to communicate, you have to have, like, two individuals that are kind of, like, nearly synced so that they can yeah, I vaguely remember sing this. a chorus of their communication in mm-hmm. a way that the alien can understand it. But it when I read it, 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 it got me to wondering, you know, is it, possible within human language that there there are any human language systems where lying doesn't exist and um, as far as I can tell lying is pretty much everywhere uh, in some form but there is this interesting tongue known as Paraha uh, that the Paraha people uh, of the Amazon speak and uh, it provides uh, some interesting food for thought on you know on, on the on what what is it like to have a language that is a little more limited okay. A lot of this comes from a 2007 New Yorker article titled The Interpreter. Um, We can just do a quick rundown of some of the more astounding attributes of the language. Okay. So uh, in this definition of Paraha, one of the first things that we know is that it's based on merely eight consonants and three vowels. There's a complex array of tones, stresses, and syllable lengths. Uh, the speakers can drop the vowels and consonants and instead use singing, humming, and whistling. That's interesting. Yeah, that remind. There's a, a recent thing that came out about uh, whistling Turkish. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. There's like a version of Turkish that is whistled for long distance communication, but it's it's different enough from Turkish to where if you're a Turkish language speaker, even a native Turkish speaker, if you're unfamiliar with whistled Turkish, you're not you going to understand it. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Uh, and this paraha also contains no numbers or a system of counting. So I imagine what we were talking about earlier with regards to time probably impacts their culture significantly. Yeah, they used uh, the simplest pronoun inventory known. And they have uh, a lack of any relative tenses or any individual or collective memory more than two generations past. So, again, look, that, that's just alone how not using numbers can impact you. Yeah, they have. Uh, they, they can't understand anything that they didn't actually experience, probably. Right. Yeah. They have no drawings or art. They lack uh, they lack color words. And this one's interesting. They lack creation myths and fiction, hmm. which is kind of close to the inability to lie. Mm, interesting. So, in the uh, in this uh, for this uh, particular uh, New Yorker piece, uh, they they draw out that uh, you know this is an isolated people, and they live in a hunter gatherer world of the here and now. So it's a it, it's a world without abstraction. If they're talking about something, or if they're paying it much heed, then that thing is right in front of them to see, to smell, to taste, to touch. You know, there's there's no, hey, guys, I just saw five flowers uh, that must have been created by a god. Instead, they merely say, hey, check out these flowers. Here they are right yeah. before us. There's no worrying about where they are in time and space because they are right here. So I'm really curious, did the, the this piece in The New Yorker get into how the 
interaction with the Western world affected them or their language or their culture? Like just by being there, mm-hmm. the journalist was influencing their language. Yeah, I mean, they, I don't think they got into it much in that piece. Uh, but, I mean, there are going to be some concepts that they just don't get as much. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, like here's an example. Uh, they mentioned that uh, for the Paraha people, when someone walks around a bend in the, in the river, that person has not simply gone away, but they have gone out of existence. So, wow. So, I mean, it... Their understanding of the world, their linguistic uh, processing of the world, is so different from uh, you know from English speakers that yeah. uh, there are certain concepts that are going to be difficult to pass back and forth. There are going to be concepts that are going to be difficult for them to assimilate. So again, like let's let's think about this in terms of the feral children that we were talking about before, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this sounds completely alien uh, to me. Mm-hmm. Trying to think about uh, living a world, living in a world where there's no fiction. I don't know that I could do that. Yeah, but uh, imagine not even, uh, not even having words to understand anything. Not even having the capacity to understand where you begin and, and the rest of the world ends. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, it reminds me a bit too. Uh, we talked about. Uh, Inuit language systems a bit earlier about so yeah. many words for snow. Yeah, I remember reading about uh, Inuit peoples that um, that referred to distance in terms of time. Uh, right. Yeah. Like if you saw, you can see tremendous distance in this particular area, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. you know, long flat areas. But it's about like to look through a, a telescope uh, is to look into the future. Which is okay. kind of yeah. is actually I can true understand in its own that, sense. especially because like I, I think this is a fairly American concept that yeah we use miles to measure long distances, mm-hmm. but for the most part, when we're talking about miles, we're talking about how lo- far you can travel, yeah, or, or how long you can travel in that period of time, right? So. Rather, when somebody says to me, how far away is Woodstock, Georgia? I say 40 minutes. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Rather yeah, than. And I think I think about things like that for the most part. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing that this makes me think about is animals, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, we're getting to the, the core of this argument about, you know, feral children. What's the difference between a human being and an animal? Like we said earlier, animals aren't technically learning language. Some of them understand symbol use. My dog understands when I say sit, it sits, right? True. Um, that doesn't mean that he has the capacity for language. But at the same time, my dog has an understanding of the world that uh, is more complex than it sounds like these some of these feral children have. Yeah, because at least the the dog has had the chance to come of age in an environment, you know, like, I mean, yeah. and it, it's, I don't know, it's your dog, your dog gets to go outside. He obviously. does. And he socializes, yeah. right? Not only with, uh, my family and other human beings, but with other dogs too. So that, this is a key component here too, for the feral children, right? It's not just about language. It's about the so- socialization part. Yeah. Yeah. They're not getting to, so they're having extremely limited socialization with, any humans, and then right. virtually no socialization with children their own age. Like, what would happen to an animal if you uh, took it away from its its uh, family, put it in a room, and didn't interact with it for four years? Well, you're talking about an inside cat, basically. <laughs> you know, they go crazy, and yeah. they're difficult well, to live with. Unfortunately, I have to interact with my inside cat. But yeah, yeah, she basically just tries to rip my face open. Yeah, and 
just, you know, we wonder why they're crazy. <laughs> we don't outside. And we do that because we love them so much. Yep. But it's a twisted relationship we have. Furry babies. Um, now, there's a, there's another interesting case that, uh, uh, that has been, uh, been studied that, um, that answers some of our questions about, uh, about, about what it is like to live without language. And, uh, this comes from, uh, author, uh, Susan, uh, Schaller's, uh, uh, work, uh, dealing with a deaf Mexican immigrant who grew up in a house with hearing parents, uh, who could not teach him sign language. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, again, she, she discusses this in her book, and I think this has been, uh, she's also made the rounds on radio shows in the past. So she was okay. on Radio Lab, she may have been on This American Life, so a number of you are probably familiar with this case. But, um, the man in question, who she referred to as, uh, Ed Alfonso, was, uh, he wasn't devoid of human intelligence, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he developed an interesting survival tactic. Uh, the one that, that proved problematic when she was trying to teach him, and that was mimicry. Like, he would, okay. he would see people talking, but he couldn't hear the sound. He didn't even know what sound was. Yeah. Uh, so he would mimic the, 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 the movements of the mouth. So in a lot of ways, that's like when, the, when they try to teach some animals language, uh, like chimpanzees, mm-hmm. even though the, I'm assuming these chimpanzees aren't deaf when they're teaching them, but they're, that's how they start off, yeah. by mimicking what they're, ta- what they're taught. Interesting. Yeah, and so that proved problematic when she was trying to teach him sign language. Sure. But, uh, and it was long, frustrating work, but she finally achieved a breakthrough when she was able to teach him that things have names. Like, that was the first big breakthrough. Yeah. That he learned that all these things I'm seeing in the world around me, they have names. They have, uh, there's a symbolic uh, system that I can refer to to say what that is. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I'm assuming he was of adult age by this time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he, uh, you know, he, he ended up, uh, you know, acquiring uh, a sign language. It made a huge difference to him. Uh, but she continued to always have trouble, like, trying to draw out from him what it was like to live without language. Oh, because yeah. Because he was, you know, he had a lot of shame about it. He referred to it as a dark time. Uh, and now he was out of that darkness and didn't want to dwell on it. But think about it, too. We don't have the capacity in, written into our language in order to be able to describe what life is like without language. Yeah. So even once you've taught it to him, he's, he, he would have difficulty explaining it. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, how do you use language to describe the complete absence of language? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, this gets into, um, all of this ultimately leads to two models that we have for uh, for the for how language and cognition uh, deal with each other. There's the language first model, and this uh, essentially this model uh, posits that cognition emerges from language, and that without language, our cognitive development is severely uh, inhibited. Uh, it also posits that a people's cognitive abilities are tied to its language. Okay, so and this is the window model that we were sort of talking about earlier. Yeah, I feel like this is the model that pretty much everything we've been talking about lines up yeah, with. Yeah. The thought-first argument uh, suggests that language merely expresses thought and is not a prerequisite. But this would require a language of thought to underlie language itself. So this would kind of tie it with Chomsky's earlier arguments back in the, in the 70s. The idea um, of a universal language. Yeah, but this would involve there being like a, essentially a universal sub-language that exists beneath language, and then our acquisition of language is based on this. But again, that that doesn't really line up with uh, with the cases we've been looking at. Perhaps at least in terms can, of evidence, yeah. Yeah. This... 
all right, maybe I'm going down the wrong way with this, but bear with me. Language of thought. So that sounds like telepathy to me. <laughs> so like if you never experienced, if you were part of an alien species that didn't have mouths, but you were telepathic mm-hmm. and you could speak to one another that way. Yeah. It makes me think of, uh, a fiction, really, like how, uh-huh. where you'll have a, a book where you'll have a, uh, the main character thinks eloquently, but you know talks poorly. Gotcha. You know, yeah. But which works within a you know within a, a within literature. Uh huh. I'm not so sure that it works as a model for human cognition. Yeah, or that in right exactly that in real life are people with limited language capacity do they still have complex thought processes? Yeah. or vice versa. Yeah, and then what is it like to have a complex thought without language? It's uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that I'm inclined to lean towards the language first models. Then, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, same here for now, just based on the evidence. But I think it would be intriguing. You know, Chomsky's idea was interesting. Interesting enough that it lasted for four decades. Yeah, uh, but it's just it hasn't been proven. Yeah, I would be interested to see a thought first argument with. Uh, with a lot of data to back it up, like uh, to, to see what mm-hmm. what 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 data are they looking at? Clearly, not not the cases that that we looked at in this episode so much, but uh, but maybe there is a more compelling case to be made when you look at the, their body of evidence. And certainly, in the case of feral children, the thought first argument doesn't seem to play out. Right. All right. So there you have it. Language, uh, its its power, its importance, and some of the nuances across our our varied human languages that uh, that I think helps to to drive home just how powerful and essential language is. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, like I've said in, in other episodes that we've done, you know, we're not exactly experts on this. I, I did go to school for communication studies, but I was not uh, specifically focused on language development, which mm-hmm. many people do focus in. Uh, and spend their entire careers in. So I would, if you're one of those people out there and you have opinions on this or you've got something that you can share with us that we could maybe, you know, add to a listener mail episode down the road or maybe correct something that we've said here today, uh, I'd love to hear from you. So, uh, you can get us in contact with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And on all of those platforms, we are Blow the Mind. Yeah, and certainly, um, if there, we'd love to cover more uh, linguistic topics. So if there are other, you know, the other related material you want to bring to light, uh, get in touch with us. And in the meantime, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, where you'll find all the podcast episodes all the way back to the beginning of time, as well as videos and blog posts. And one other way that you can get in touch with us is by direct email, the old-fashioned way. Well, not exactly, but uh, you can write to us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 